This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. So, welcome to the program, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. And as you can tell by my background, yes, it is indeed Bill of Rights Day. And I am super ecstatic about it. Before we get into the program, though, I did want to mention there were several people that just let me know today that they had prayer requests for me since I was going to the doctor for another one of my cancer screenings. And uh, those results usually don't come in for a day or two, so I'll try to know between then. But my doctor's very confident that I don't have anything, and, and the kind of cancer I have, it's very rare that it comes back. But I just did want to issue a thank you for everything that you guys have done for me. I mean, a lot of you guys that have been watching the program for a long time, you guys have been praying for me for three years now, and it, it has been three years since I was first diagnosed with cancer, and so... I just really, really appreciate the support and the prayers, and I know that they help. So I just wanted to say thank you before we get into the show. Now, let's actually get into the meat and potatoes, what we're talking about. Yes, today is the day that the Bill of Rights was put forward, and we actually had the Bill of Rights. A lot of people get confused about this. They think that the Bill of Rights came along with the Constitution. Well, they happen in close proximity to one another, but the Bill of Rights did come significantly later. So... The Virginia, which was the final state that was needed to ratify the Constitution, or sorry, the, the Bill of Rights as amendments to the Constitution, they did so on December the 15th, 19, or 1791. So think about that. We actually already had our, our, our president in place and everything, and so the Bill of Rights did come later. And so this is important to understand that 229 years ago, the Bill of Rights came and here's why we celebrate these things. It's important to understand the difference in these things because we have Independence Day, which of course is the one that everybody knows about. It's the biggest one. That's when we declared independence with the Declaration of Independence. That's when that was issued on July 4th, 1776. And so we celebrate that one because that's when America said, America will be free. We're not going to be under the thumb of England anymore. We will be free. Constitution Day, which is a little bit less known, but that comes when America said, America will be one nation. We were already free, we were no longer under England, but we were basically 13 completely different countries with completely different rules and regulations sort of loosely held together by the Articles of Confederation. And when I mean loosely, I mean incredibly loosely. There was very little structure there. There was no real federal government. It was just kind of, you know that uh, scene in Pirates of the Caribbean where they go, and the code, it's... Well, it's more like guidelines than actual rules. That's kind of how the Articles of Confederation was. It wasn't a terrible document, but at the same time, it didn't have any teeth. It didn't have any way to enforce anything. And so ultimately, it was there, but the states really didn't have to abide by it much if they didn't want to. And so the Federalists kind of came together and had the idea, we need an actual constitution and an actual structure. Does it have to be a big one? Does it have to be obtrusive? We still want states to have the maximum amount of freedom, but there are certain things that we will only be able to do if we unite as one nation. And so that's what Constitution Day is for. That is the day that we came together and said, America, our 13 individual colonies, will be states and we will be one nation. We will be unified. So that's how it goes. We will be free and then we will be unified. And then today, that's Bill of Rights Day. So the Bill of Rights is interesting because... Our Declaration of Independence, that's basically the, the nation's mission statement. That is, these are the values, these are the things that we believe. It doesn't say anything about government. 
It doesn't say anything about what America's structure is going to look like or anything. It's just saying, this is the stuff that we believe in and we're going to live by it. So it's very broad and very general. The Constitution is much more specific. It's very structural in nature. It's saying, these are the ways that you are going to conduct government. But here's the thing. That style of government, it's good, it has checks and balances, and, and it's very you know, structurally interesting from that perspective. But at the end of the day, the simple truth of the matter is, it's just a structure. It's just like a car. A car, it doesn't get you anywhere. It just is the vehicle to take you somewhere. It doesn't give you direction. You decide that. The user is the one that's driving the car, but that car could drive you to a very, very good place or a very, very bad place. It's just a car. It's just an engine. And that's really what the Constitution is. So the Bill of Rights is very different because Bill of Rights Day is the day that we said America will not fall into tyranny. So we already had a mission statement that didn't really have any... You couldn't really put anything into it. It didn't really have any teeth. But it was just a general statement of things that we all believe. And then you had the Constitution which said this is the engine which we're going to use to try to get us to where we said we want to go in the Declaration of Independence. And then the Bill of Rights came along because a lot of people in America with legitimate concerns said, yeah, but it's quite possible we wind up driving this car into a ditch or into a canyon. And we wind up doing it to ourselves. And these are the ways that we've been screwed over in the past. And so because of that, we want to put some safety rails in place to make sure that America doesn't become the very thing that we left. It doesn't become a tyrannical state. And the Bill of Rights was orchestrated to try to prevent America from becoming that. That was the purpose of the Bill of Rights. And so, the Declaration, we will be free. The Constitution, we will be united. And then, the third one, the Bill of Rights, we will not be tyrannical. We are not going to abridge the rights of our citizens and take over and become all-powerful and all of that stuff. So, really it's important to understand the argument that undergirds all of this, because... There were two main groups, just kind of like there are today, uh, very different in nature and very different in mission, but just like, just like uh, it is right now with Republicans and Democrats, back then, America was primarily divided into two major groups. You had Federalist, and you had Anti-Federalist. Those were the two people, the two groups of people that were sort of at war with one another. So here's the argument for the Federalists. The Federalists are the ones that gave us the Constitution. The Anti-Federalists are primarily the ones that gave us the Bill of Rights. Now, both of those groups were involved in both the formation of the Constitution and the formation of the Bill of Rights, but the Federalists were kind of driving the Constitution, and the Anti-Federalists were kind of driving most of the ideas behind the Bill of Rights, and you'll understand why when I explain their arguments. You see, the Federalists believed that we needed a structure for the Constitution primarily because we said, look, these are rights, and these are self-evident. They are given to us by God. They were just reciting what was said in the Declaration of Independence. These are rights that are self-evident. They're abundantly clear to everybody. Everybody can tell that these are rights that people are supposed to have. And also, they are granted to us by God. They're not given to us by government. We have them outside the purview of government. They pre-exist government. They are there before government ever even comes into the picture. And the Anti-Federalists looked at that and said... Yeah, yeah, we agree with those things. But the Federalists kind of took that a step further and said, because of this, we don't really need a Bill of Rights. We don't need a Bill of Rights because 
These are rights that God gave to us. And wouldn't it be just kind of arrogant for us to say, hey, we can make a list of rights that explain exactly what happened. That's something that should only belong in the Bible. That's something that, that God orchestrated. And because of that, we don't need to be making lists of rights. And that would be a really, really bad thing if we tried to do that because people might think that that list is exhaustive. This is the argument that James Madison made. He said, if we start making a Bill of Rights, then what's going to happen is people are going to look at that Bill of Rights and say, oh, well, I guess these are all the rights that we have. Well, that means that this thing, which also is self-evident and clearly a God-given right, must not be a right because it's not in the list that James Madison wrote. That's how they feared the Bill of Rights was going to be looked at. That basically, if a right isn't found in the Bill of Rights, then it must not really be a God-given right that's self-evident to everybody. And because of that, they felt like they would be closing the door on that. They felt like this would be the final say, and that courts and generations in the future would say, well, we really only have these rights. And by the way, there were a lot of rights. There were a lot of rights that they looked at. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, the list at one point was 27 amendments. Or no, 22 amendments. 27 is the current number that we have. And then they whittled that down to like 18 and then 13, and finally we wound up with the 10 that we have now. But ultimately, that is what happened. And so you had the Federalists who were making this argument that, look, people might think that the list is exhaustive, and because we do have God-given rights and they are self-evident, we don't want to lock ourselves into saying these are the only rights. Because they, the founders also realized that the world could change that we could see something that is very abundantly, clearly a self-evident right that maybe we didn't think about before. You might realize this is why the Bill of Rights is written incredibly vaguely, because it was supposed to be broad. You'll notice, for example, this is just one tiny example, but this is a good example of it, that when it comes to the Second Amendment, it says to keep and bear arms. Not to keep and bear muskets, not to keep and bear pistols, not to keep and bear firearms to keep and bear arms. If we invent lightsabers one day, <laughs> I know, I'm a nerd. If we invent lightsabers one day, those will be protected under the 10th Amendment. Why? Because it's an arm. And so they wanted to use the most general terms possible in order to create sort of a broad umbrella to accommodate for the changing world. Because the rights that they were espousing were eternal. The Bill of Rights was not put together as something, and that's the reason that the Constitution itself is broad. They wanted it to be something that would last for a long time, that would give America some stability, but would also ensure that people have rights, and that wouldn't change just because the world had changed. Now, they did leave the avenue open to amend the Constitution in the future as needed, but they wanted to make it incredibly difficult to do, specifically because they wanted it to only be things that pretty much the entire country agreed on, or at least such a large majority that uh, it would be, you'd have to have overwhelming support for an idea to make it an actual constitutional amendment. And then the other side of that is they wanted it to be eternal because they believed that this was communicating an eternal truth. Because if your rights are something that are self-evident and granted to you by your creator at birth, that's not something that's going to change in a thousand years. A thousand years ago, humans had the same human rights as we do. And a thousand years in the future, they will have the same human rights as we do. Those might take slightly different forms. You know, freedom of the press might look like posting on Facebook versus uh, writing it in a newspaper and distributing it. But ultimately, that is what it is. And that's why they use these broad, sweeping parts of their language. And then there was the anti-federalist answer to that. 
And this really helps you understand how we got the Bill of Rights. Because the Anti-Federalists said, well, yeah, but rights have always been self-evident. And by the way, rights have always been given to us by God. You're right, Federalist. They are eternal truths. Despite this, the default of man has been tyranny for the entirety of human history. And it's a dang good argument. Generally speaking, I sided with the Federalist on most things when I look through history and look at their arguments, but the Anti-Federalist nailed that one. What they were saying is, look, Federalist, we see your point. We do. But ultimately, the thing that we need to convey is that it's not that your concern is illegitimate. We don't want people to think that this is an exhaustive list or that the government is giving people rights and that that's not something that comes from God. But ultimately, what we have to do is convey that, okay, these are the rights that are recognized by God. And as a government, we refuse. In fact, we're putting legal protections in there to ensure that we do not trample upon those rights. And the reason that we have to do that is because it seems like every single freaking time throughout the entirety of human history that a government was given the opportunity to trample on those rights, they did. And a pretty big number of the Federalists looked at that and went, yeah, that's, that's actually true. History is on your side there, Anti-Federalist. And so we should probably put together some kind of bill that helps us with that. And, you know, even though there were a lot of people that contributed to this over a series of several months, it's interesting that even though this was mostly an Anti-Federalist idea, James Madison probably put more work into the Bill of Rights than anybody. A Federalist... And the guy who also wrote the Constitution, which was largely supported by the Federalists as opposed to the Anti-Federalists. And there's a lot of other people that had a lot of contributions to it. George Mason, for example, is known as the father of the Bill of Rights, and there's a good reason for that, which is also kind of ironic since he eventually voted against the Bill of Rights. He thought it didn't go far enough. But anyway, without getting off onto that rabbit trail, the answer to this was, you know what, they've always been God-given. They've always been self-evident. And so we need to make sure that people understand that and we're going to use only the biggest, broadest kind of rights and include them in the Bill of Rights. But also, let's include the Ninth Amendment. And we'll go over this in a second. We're about to go through all of them. But the reason that they put the Ninth Amendment in there is they were like, mm, let's leave that door open. Let's make sure that people know this list isn't the be-all, end-all. That this isn't a listing of every single right that you are going to have from now till the end of time. That there may be other things that people consider rights in the future. And I'm not talking about free health care here. <laughs> uh, I actually did a video on that not long ago. But uh, only things that are self-evident, that are widely agreed upon, that are God-given rights and not something that you just have as a uh, the good graces of government. Those are what we're going to include, but also let's include the Ninth Amendment so people know that we didn't intend to make this an exhaustive list. That if you think of something else that is also a self-evident right that is so abundantly clear to everyone and also is clearly ha has some kind of spark of the divine that you can trace it back to a right that God has given to you by, according to the Declaration of Independence's language, nature's God or nature's law, one of those two things, then yeah, amend the Constitution again and include that right. That's why they specifically left that up to the states and made sure that it would not be used as an excuse to prevent somebody from having their rights. That's why they included the Ninth Amendment in there. And so 
all of these concerns were met, and it really does go to show how these two sides on the argument, the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist, they came together to create a pretty darn good system of government and Bill of Rights that has granted freedom not only to America, but has been used as a template to inspire millions of other people all across the globe to find their own freedom as well. So ultimately, that is where we landed. And here's the thing. Both of them were right. The Anti-Federalists and the Federalists were both right. Even though sometimes their arguments d didn't really align with one another, and even though sometimes they had a different idea about how to get to the same place, ultimately both of them were right. And why were they right? Because they understood the sinful nature of human beings. That's all it is, guys. They understood that humans cannot be trusted with absolute power. They understood that human beings, if given the opportunity, would trample upon the rights of their neighbors. And that is why they included the Bill of Rights in the Constitution, because they knew that in the future, and frankly, probably in the present, I, I mean, we saw even Thomas Jefferson and John Adams occasionally violate people's rights and, and go against the Constitution. That did happen even that early. And I think both of those men were incredibly good men and had the best of intentions, but they screwed up because they're flawed human beings too. And ultimately what happened with all of that is that they were both right because they understood the fallen nature of humans. And because of that, they made provisions and countermeasures inside the Constitution to try to prevent anybody from amassing too much power or having too much control over the lives of individual citizens. And this is why, despite their disagreements, both of them wanted a small government. You see, the nature of temptation is it's a thing that you want. And they know that the thing that people wanted was power and control over an individual's life and their choices. And if you make government super, super small, then that temptation just isn't there as much. If, this, if the federal government just doesn't have a ton of power, if there's not a whole lot you can do with it, even if you do have control of it, then that temptation really isn't there. Think about it this way. What would be more tempting to an evil person that would like to kill a lot of people? Would it be a BB gun or a nuclear bomb? Well, obviously the nuclear bomb would give that person more power and it would give them the ability to get more of what they want, whether it was just, you know, they're like the Joker and just love seeing people die, whether it was using that as some kind of threat against them, you know, whatever it is that they want, if they wanted to seize power, whatever it is, the nuke is obviously a much larger temptation than the BB gun. And so our founders, both the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist, again, sometimes they didn't necessarily agree the best way to do this, but their goal in both was to create a government that was basically a BB gun. Now, the Articles, the Articles of Confederation was basically just a picture of a gun. <laughs> That's really all it was. That's how ineffective it was, which is why they decided we needed a constitution. And so uh, the BB gun is like the constitution, and then they put a safety on the BB gun just in case, because even with the limited power that the constitution granted, they still didn't want people abusing it. And so the Bill of Rights is that safety measure that the Anti-Federalists wanted installed in the gun, to make sure that it isn't used incorrectly or against its citizens. It's actually an incredibly elegant system, and unprecedented in the world up until the point that it was created. And so because of that, that's really what happened, is that they wanted to limit human temptation because they understood that sinful nature of man, 
And so because of that, they said, here's the Bill of Rights that's going to make sure the government can't do these things. Ergo, people will be less drawn to taking over it. People will be less drawn to the idea of having complete control over it and using it as a cudgel against people who they don't like or their enemies or whatever else it is, or just using it as a blunt instrument to enforce their will upon others. That's why the Bill of Rights exists, because it recognizes that human beings are flawed, sinful individuals, and because of that, we're going to limit the power of the federal government as much as we possibly can in order to maximize liberty. That was the idea behind it, and that's why we have the Bill of Rights. And part of the reason that it's important to understand this is that every single amendment in the Bill of Rights directly correlates to a right that was being violated by England, either in the time of the Revolution or very near to it. And so that really helps put into perspective why these things were chosen as the Bill of Rights, because they had seen firsthand what happens when a government violates these principles and takes its citizens and re doesn't regard their rights. When the government looks at itself as supreme and that the rights come from the government as opposed to coming from God and something that each individual has and a government does not have the right to trample upon, they knew what that was like because they had lived it. And so with that in mind, I did want to kind of go through these really quickly because I think that, and we'll just kind of rapid fire them, but going through all of them helps you understand the history and the reason that we have each of these amendments. So let's go ahead and look at the First Amendment. Uh, I'm sure you're all very familiar with this one. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, this is something that I'm sure pretty much all of you are very familiar with, but there's five rights in the First Amendment. And every single one of them were being violated by England. First of all, there was a Church of England. The whole reason that we came to America in the first place, not so much Jamestown, but afterward with the Pilgrims, when they landed at Plymouth, that was because they wanted religious freedom. It was Puritans who were a religious minority in England at the time fleeing the persecution of the Anglican Church. And one thing that's interesting to note about the original colonies is they all kind of had their own individual state churches, and most of the people that wanted to belong to that church moved to the state where that church reigned. Now, eventually, by the time the revolution came around, they had pretty much all decided, yeah, having a state religion, not a good idea. And only four colonies still had one, so that means that there were nine that didn't have a state religion at all, and the remaining four were phased out not too long afterward. But the point is, England was doing this, and because of that, they said, yeah, having the government in bed with the church, not a good idea. We like church, we think it's a good idea, we just think it should be separate from the government, and because of that, government should not interfere with church. That's important. Because what we hear today is what that guarantees is that you can't have the church influence the state. No, it's the exact opposite. People's faith can dictate how they vote and what they think a government should look like, but what the original intention of the First Amendment was, was that, no, the state shouldn't get involved in church issues, and the church shouldn't get involved in saying, okay, well, theologically, we think this guy is correct, therefore we're going to go with him. No, that's not the government's job. And so because of that, because England was doing that at the time, they decided, 
and that's something that was ingrained to us at the very first part of, of colonizing, is people trying to come here for religious liberty, and because of that, that was included. Also, the crown very routinely would silence detractors and critics both in England itself and in America. That was just a, a common thing for them to do. If you disagreed with the government, England could punish you for disagreeing. It was also kind of routine practice for England to shut down press that disagreed with it. Uh, when it came to like the pamphlet war or a number of other things, they actually would, would try to go out and shut down press outlets that they didn't agree with. Then you've got when it comes to trying to suppress gatherings and protests. Remember that the Boston Massacre, the reason that it occurred is because a group of people that were protesting the occupation by the Redcoats in Boston, that's where that came from. The Redcoats were trying to tamp down gatherings in public to display a problem that the people were having. And so because of that, the Boston Massacre happened. Now, there, there were other things leading up to it, but my point is that was an example of them trying to suppress public gatherings. And then also, those who petitioned the government, which is the fifth right guaranteed by the First Amendment, those who petitioned the government, those were usually persecuted. Remember that for about 20 years, people had been sending letters after letters to the king trying to get him to offer them some kind of representation so that they, their voice could be heard, and, and that was the, the, the battle cry of the revolution, no taxation without representation. They were like, yeah, you have the right to tax us, but we kind of need to be represented if that's going to happen. And Thomas Jefferson, who had been a critic of England, they actually tried to kill him. A lot of people don't realize this. Before the Revolutionary War ever happened, they were planning on either seizing or killing Thomas Jefferson, and, and he was warned in the dead of night and had to flee Monticello. And so, these are all things that England had been doing, and, and by the way, it doesn't just stop with the First Amendment. Of course, the Second Amendment is a part of this as well. I'm sure you're all familiar with this one, too. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. Now, this one's pretty simple. Uh, it's, it's one of the ones that you can just draw a very quick one-to-one -one comparison to, because in 1774, they started saying that you cannot sell musket ammo and firearms, or sorry, uh, gunpowder for firearms to people. A lot of people don't realize that, but that actually happened. England actually quashed the market for ammo and for gunpowder, trying to make sure that if there was a rebellion, any people that were rebels would be poorly armed and, and not well equipped to be able to take on the British Navy and the Redcoats, the Hessians, all the other forces that England had employed to make sure that the colonists stayed in line. And then in 1775, they actually started confiscating muskets. And then, of course, in 1776, we declared our independence. Gun rights are something that go back to the very beginning, the origin of the American ideal and the American Revolution. It happened because, at least in part, because they were trying to regulate every part of our lives, and that included our right to keep and bear arms. That's why the Second Amendment is included. Let's look at the Third Amendment. So you can see here, the Third Amendment, no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. Now, this is one that a lot of people really don't think about. It's kind of, uh, it, it just kind of gets glossed over when they're thinking about, hmm, what are the amendments to the Constitution? What's in the Bill of Rights? The reason for that is because we don't really have, like, the National Guard quartering in people's houses anymore. 
But the thing is, this is something that was a reality back then. England would routinely quarter their troops without the owner's consent, take their food, take their, you know, whatever, the, the fruit of their labor, and they would just take it. And normally they did this to people who were dissidents or rebels. So they would specifically find people that they knew were on the side of independence and, and favored an independent America, and they would quarter the troops there. And so that served two purposes. First of all, it would punish the people that were perceived as their enemies. And the second reason is it was a way for the soldiers to keep an eye on people that they believed were, were going to be enemies or at the very least potential enemies. And so there's a reason that this was a very clear violation of, of people's rights, and that's why it's included in the Constitution. Let's look at the Fourth Amendment. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly prescribed, or sorry, described the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Now, without going into a whole like legal explanation of that, basically what that's saying is, if you're going to have a warrant, you got to know what you're looking for. In other words, there has to be some kind of suspicion of wrongdoing. You can't just say, let's go search it and see what we find. No, you have to have a warrant which says exactly what you're looking for and who is being served the warrant. In other words, the person you are suspicious of some kind of wrongdoing, and it can't just be unlimited. You have to do it for each search that you do. There's a lot that goes into that, but ultimately what it boils down to is, at the time, England was searching and seizing property from people who it didn't like. If there were people that were on the side of the revolution, England would just go in and seize part of their business, seize things out of their house. If they just thought that maybe they had some kind of issue, they would either write a warrant themselves or just ignore a warrant and go in and search it. By the way, it was a customary thing to go in and search ships, storehouses, businesses of anybody that they didn't like specifically looking for something. So in other words, they didn't really suspect any wrongdoing. They were just looking through there trying to find something to bust them on. And that wasn't right, and that's why the Fourth Amendment is included in this. Uh, we could also look at the Fifth Amendment. So if you look, well, that, that's actually the Sixth Amendment. The Fifth Amendment. So, no person shall be held to answer for capital or otherwise infamous crime unless a presentment or indictment of grand jury, except in cases arising in the land of naval forces or in the militia, when in actual service, in time of war or public danger, nor shall any person be subject to the same offense or to be twi put twice in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Now, there's a lot of reasons that, there's frankly a lot of things we could go into with this. This is a little bit longer when it's, it's somewhat all-inclusive, but England was doing all of these things. It was just seizing property for no reason. It wasn't using due process of law. Sometimes it would send in constables or sheriffs that were friendly to England to just seize things of people that they didn't like. And so taking away people's property was a pretty common thing. And sometimes they would randomly search these businesses or homes for no reason other than they happened to be dissonance of England. 
and they would go in and just take things. They would seize entire ships sometimes. Sometimes they would even take ships of people that they knew were providing things to people that they didn't like. So in other words, the person that was having their stuff taken wasn't even necessarily a rebel, but they knew that they were selling things to people that were rebels. And so you can see there was just a massive abridgment of people's private property rights and just ignoring those altogether. And that comes from a difference of how we see things. You see, in England, everything was the king's. The land was the king's. The wildlife was the king. Literally, everything was the king's. If you shot a deer in your own backyard and used it to make meat, well, you can't do that. That's the king's deer in the king's land. You're just a serf that happens to be living on the land at the time, but it's really all the kings, and really you're the kings too. Ultimately, everything was seen as property of the king. America flipped that on its head. The individual is supreme, and the government only exists to preserve the rights that were given to that individual. Therefore, the Fifth Amendment was put into place. It's saying, no, no, we recognize that property that your property belongs to you and you alone, and government is actually subservient to that and cannot violate that. And so that's the reason that the Fifth Amendment was put into place, because it completely turned the idea of private property rights on its head compared to what it was in England. It recognizes that, no, the fruit of your labor belongs to you, and we exist to make sure no one takes that from you. It's the exact opposite of the way the British system worked. Let's go ahead and look at the Sixth Amendment. So the Sixth Amendment, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy a right to speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witness against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. Now, these are primarily court laws, but again, the reason that they exist is because England was violating all of these things. It was not an uncommon thing at all for somebody to be accused of a crime and then them drag him to a completely different place where the crime didn't even happen and basically just tell the judge, you know, we got to find this guy guilty. He's, you know, a dissonant. And he would also be judged by people that were not in his community, that had nothing to do with the crime. Uh, this was routine practice by the British Crown, and it was the way that they would terrorize their citizens into subjugation, because they would give them a completely unfair trial, or sometimes they would just let these guys hang sort of in limbo. So they would accuse them of a crime and put them in jail, but not give them bond or bail, and just kind of leave them there indefinitely and say, yeah, your trial's on the way, we'll get around to it at some point, we're not really sure. And so this right was put into place to prevent our government from doing that, from just saying, say, find a political enemy and just leave him in jail and not tell him what he's charged of, not give him the ability to mount some kind of defense or to speak in his own defense or favor or compel him to speak against himself and be a witness against his, his own case. There were a myriad of different things that they were writing this bill specifically to try to prevent that England was doing. So let's go ahead and look at the Seventh Amendment. The Seventh Amendment, in suits of common law, where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, that one probably needs to be updated, 
the right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of common law. So the, what England was doing with this one is, it was kind of what we were just kind of talking about. Um, they would tend to just sort of keep people tied up in court proceedings for a really long time or even indefinitely. And because of that, they would just, uh, you know, just kind of leave it there. And uh, there was a, that, that limit of $20. Granted, that, you know, like I was kind of joking about, probably needs to be updated. But the point is that sometimes, even with something that was a, a little petty crime, that England would just kind of hold that over somebody's head and, and keep them there and, and, you know, enact some kind of uh, imprisonment that they would just leave there indefinitely and tie people up in, in court proceedings or just jail them. And so this is something that England was doing, unfortunately, on routine. Let's go ahead and look at the Eighth Amendment. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor shall excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. So again, this is kind of what was being talked about beforehand. It was to ensure that just because somebody was a political enemy or adversary of America, it didn't necessarily mean you know, just because the person happened to be in power or something, that you could enact some kind of excessive punishment for the crime just because you didn't like the person. And that's something that England did all the time. They were requiring excessive bail even for petty crimes to keep their political dissonance behind bars so that they couldn't speak out against them. And so it was sort of a convenient and clever way to silence free speech without openly saying that you were silencing them. So they would take like a, a petty theft or something and put the bail at some ridiculous amount because they were specifically trying to keep that person behind bars thinking maybe they were a troublemaker for those that were in power. And this is another interesting one in a very unique way. The Ninth Amendment, it's a little bit different because you could argue that England was doing exactly this, but like I said, the Ninth Amendment was primarily put in there just to say that, well, we don't know about all the rights and this is not an exhaustive list, therefore we're going to leave the door open on this. But what it, the way it reads, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So, in other words, what that one's trying to say is, just because there's not a law there, we're not going to allow you to use that as a technicality to say, uh, to try to go after somebody because of that. So say, see, not listed in the Constitution, therefore this must be a crime. Well, no, you can't use an, that's using an absence of evidence as proof of something, which is a logical fallacy. And the thing is, England sometimes did this. Now, they didn't have a federalist system, and that's why I said this one's a little trickier to pin down whether or not England was doing this in a, a very one-to-one -one comparison. And, and also because they had a Magna Carta and there were rights for British citizens, but not in the same individualist Lockean kind of view that America had. And so because of that, they would say, well, there's not really a law on it, so we'll just kind of make up things in the absence of law as we go. That happens sometimes. And because of that, and because this was something that was largely left to the discretion of those in law enforcement, they said, look, we're not going to use the fact that we did not specifically lay out something in the Constitution to say in anywhere where that's not presented, that you can just make up things sort of in lieu of that. Punish, or ultimately, um, England, they believed that their rights did come from the king. 
And that was a difference here in America. See, when you believe that rights come from the king, you can believe that the king can kind of just take away those rights whenever he wants to. Or that he can just kind of change his mind on rights. And that's not the way the American system was designed to work. The Ninth Amendment understands that and acknowledges that. It says, no, the king doesn't get to decide what our rights are. God decided what our rights are, and he did that since the beginning of time. All this does is say that the Constitution acknowledges some of those and provides protection for some of those, but we're not arrogant enough to say that we understand every single human right, and because of that, we, this is an exhaustive list that can't be expounded upon in the future. That was the difference in worldview, and they reflected that in the Ninth Amendment. And then here we have, finally, the Tenth Amendment to the Bill of Rights, uh, to the Constitution. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. You see, the colonies, they had no rights. They just didn't have rights. And that is a truly unfortunate thing, but that's the way that it was. That was how the system worked at the time. Colonies weren't afforded any rights. They weren't given any authority. Do you know that there were two states that actually tried to abolish slavery before the revolution? Do you know why they weren't allowed to do it? Because England came in and said, nope, these people are British citizens. They're allowed to have slaves. You can't just get rid of slavery. There were two states ahead of time that knew it was wrong and tried to abolish it even before the Revolutionary War happened and England came in and said, nope, you can't do that, because you are merely extensions of England. You see, as a colony, you're just an expansion on our global empire. You're not your own entity. You can't rule yourself. We make your rules, and you will live by them. That's how it worked under the British system. The reason that the Tenth Amendment may be arguably not the most prominent because of the rights, but pro possibly the most important from a structural standpoint of all the rights in the Bill of Rights is that it acknowledges statehood and their rights. It acknowledges that people at the local level have a right to govern themselves more or less the way that they want to. And because it acknowledged that, it again is a reversal of the way that England saw things. That rights came from government and everything was basically allowed for you to have by the good graces of the crown. It was the opposite in America. You are an individual. You have rights given to you by God and you are the master of your own destiny. Ergo, we're going to let you govern yourselves as closely to the local level as humanly possible and we're going to take a step back. Unless it's a power that we specifically delegate to ourselves in the Constitution, federal government can't do it. That was a wild departure from the way that people thought about things in England. It was completely different from the way that every other country in history had done things. It was saying that the individual should be empowered to make as much difference in the way that they're governed in their own lives as they can. And that's the way to maximize liberty. If you want to live in a place that, that wants to do these things, fine. If you don't want to live in that place, move somewhere else to, per, to a place where people more align with your principles. And the federal government is just going to act as a, a, a very tiny government that only takes care of a handful of very specific problems, which only we can do. Everything else, that's up to y'all. And that's why the Tenth Amendment exists. And it's a shame that I think that 
out of all the amendments, this one is probably forgotten the most, to be perfectly honest. But the summary that I think everyone should take away from this and, and consider on this Bill of Rights Day is that ultimately there is no more sterling example of the founders' disdain for big government and their desire for America to be a small, tiny federal government with limited powers and not a lot of temptation for human beings than the Bill of Rights. They understood that kind of power over other people is just too big a temptation for any one person to have, or a group of people like Congress. And that's why we're going to strip them of as much power as possible and empower you, the individual citizen, to make the vast majority of decisions for your life on your own. That a man can rule himself, he needs no overseer, and ultimately what he does in this life is between him and his God. All we're going to do is take care of that handful of few things that we need to to protect you from other people violating your rights, and everything else is pretty much up to you. That's what the Bill of Rights recognizes. It is what our founders wanted, and they understood that human beings should not be given very much power. Ergo, let's make government as small as possible and the individual as big as possible in America. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be back in just a minute on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Hey, y'all, it's time for the very best part of the show. It's the time where I get to review yet another great cookie from insomniacookies.com. Insomniacookies.com. Now, you don't have to go to the online store. You could go to one of their physical locations if you happen to be in Tuscaloosa or Birmingham or Auburn or Mobile or somewhere else outside the great state of Alabama. But if you're like me and the Lord hasn't seen fit to bless you with living in a city that happens to have an Insomnia Cookies, you got to do what I do and go to insomniacookies.com. That's insomniacookies.com, all one word. And they will send you a fantastic box just like this one filled with all kinds of delicious cookies. Now, the cookie review that we're going to be doing for today is definitely the plain Jane. It's the mother cookie, the sugar cookie. And so... The sugar cookie, of course, it's kind of the vanilla ice cream of cookies. It's the standard one, but here's the thing, and, and I have not yet been disappointed in an insomnia cookie, even some of the cookie flavors that I tend to dislike, and I certainly don't dislike sugar cookies, and so I'm expecting to be blown away by this because with what insomnia cookies does with all their crazy flavors, I think that they're going to be able to impress me even with their sugar cookie, and if they do, if they can impress me with something as plain as a sugar cookie, then you know it's fantastic cookies from Insomnia Cookies and InsomniaCookies.com. So let's go ahead and dig into this one right away. Mm. One of the things I like about it is usually when you get somebody with a sugar cookie, they like to sprinkle a lot of sugar on top of it and it gives it kind of a grainy texture, and I'm just not a fan of it. Lots of people like it, and that's fine, whatever floats your boat, but that's really just not me. I kind of like the fact that the draw to this cookie seems to not be, it's not that hard, crunchy kind of sugar cookie that a lot of people have, and it doesn't have, like I said, just sprinkles on top of it. It's, it's very plain, the texture's very good, and it's, it's very doughy inside, and, and some people might really like the crunchy kinds, 
Personally, I've always really liked the softer cookies, the doughier cookies. And this one is definitely that. It's very chewy. Yeah, very soft texture, even around the edges. Even around the edges, there's a very soft texture. Obviously, it's a little softer in the middle. But even the edges are, are kind of soft. It doesn't have that crispy quality to it, and that's fine. In fact, that's what I really like. Now, if you do want a, so a harder quality to it, you could probably order it from insomniacookies.com and not do what they recommend you do, which is pop them in the microwave to warm them up because it really gets that kind of doughiness. But if you just happen to like the crispier kind of cookies, you could probably just eat it at room temperature and get a little bit more of that. But this one, it's a very, very soft cookie, very palatable. I really like it. So even a cookie as plain as your standard sugar cookie, still pretty darn good from insomniacookies.com. Now, some of you really like sugar cookies, and that's your favorite kind. I actually know a guy that every time he gets a cookie, sugar cookie is what he wants because that's his favorite. And, you know, more power to him. But as me, who tends to like a lot of toppings, like sort of the novelty cookies, like their peanut butter cup or their chocolate chunk or their mint chip, which are all really good. Those are my favorites. Even somebody that the sugar cookie is definitely pretty low on the list of cookies that he would prefer. This is a really good sugar cookie. Uh, I, I'm pretty impressed by it. And so if you do want a sugar cookie exactly like this one, if you're like a sugar cookie fan... I have a feeling you're really going to like this one from insomniacookies.com. Very soft, very doughy. It's got a really great texture to it. It has that fresh-baked cookie kind of taste, even though it comes out of a box. So be sure to check it out at insomniacookies.com. That's insomniacookies.com. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Make sure to click that like and subscribe button down there right below us, because that is how we fight the dark cyber overlords at YouTube. So, lots to go over today, and it is Bill of Rights Day, so I hope you enjoyed my uh, little lesson. I actually had a friend that told me um, it sounded like a law professor, so I'll take that as a compliment. Hopefully that is a good thing. Hopefully I'm not like one of the boring law professors, but... <laughs> Uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, switch gears here into some of the recent news about the election, because for those of you who may not know, the election, there's been recent news about voting fraud. Stuff like this just keeps trickling in, and it just amazes me that it seems like every single day we have new information about possible voting fraud. This one would be about Dominion Machines, which took place in Antrim, Michigan. And it was uh, headed by a guy who really, really smart. He's a uh, he has some connections to Harvard, and and I could go through the whole thing and go through his resume and his team and everything, but I'll just give you the long and short of it for time's sake because I, I think I did post this. Uh, yeah, it's on my Facebook page, so I did post this article. If you want to read the whole thing yourself, but it's kind of long. And so I'm just going to be hitting the highlights here. But the Dominion voting machines in Antrim County, Michigan, according to this forensics report, had a 68% error rating. 68. That is not a small number, especially when you're considering that, you know, that's significantly over half of the votes that could be incorrect in this particular forensics report. So this was conducted by Allied Security Operations Group, which is a team of defense, military, and secret service and intelligence professionals led in part by an academic from Harvard 
with expertise in business and technology. And by the way, this is a guy that has multiple degrees. He was, uh, at one point, I think he got a master's degree in forensic, uh, com computer forensics at MIT, if I'm not mistaken. So, like, this dude is the cream of the crop. And this is the report that he put out saying that this is the conclusion that you can read directly from the report. I'm quoting here. Intentionally and purposely designed with inherent errors to create systematic fraud and influence election results. That was his conclusion of this particular Dominion voting system that was put in place in the very county that was one of the ones that was up for grabs and helped swing the election in favor of Joe Biden. That's how he characterized it based on the report that he gave. That's a pretty strong accusation, though, Caleb. It is. I understand that. I, I, I know. So what, are, what in this report backs that up? Well, according to this, this is how this happened, according to him. Quote, the system intentionally generates an enormously high number of ballot errors. The electronic ballots are then transfer, transferred for adjudication. The intentional errors led to bulk adjudication of ballots with no oversight, no transparency, and no audit trail. This leads to voter or election fraud. So basically, you have two different aspects of this. You have the actual effect, and then you have what he surmises based on what he saw in the effect, and we call that the motive. So what he's saying here is the effect of this was there was no audit trail, there was no transparency, it seems like everything was purposely sabotaged to not be able to trace back what the actual votes were. And he said, and it would be one thing if there were just voter fraud that seemed to be taking place because of machine error. But based on what I can see and how all the security backups and everything were taken out, it seems as though somebody knew that this was going on. And it was fraudulent because I can't figure out any other way to explain why all of this data is missing. So it would be kind of like if you were in charge of making sure that a bank didn't get robbed. And you were saying, all right, well, let's see the video of the bank robbery. And someone said, well, we can't show you the video. Oh, why is that? Because somehow, weird coincidence... On the, the day that the bank robbery happened, all the security cameras simultaneously went down and didn't start back up until the day after. Let's say you were doing this investigation like two or three weeks after the bank was robbed. Well, what would your conclusion be then? It must have been an inside job. And the reason is because it would be one thing if there was some kind of like rampant system error. I tell you what, this is actually a better... Uh, example for it. it wasn't that the cameras were turned off or something that could be explained by a computer glitch or like a power outage or something we know for a fact that these things were intentionally turned off that someone just happened to turn off the security cameras for the couple of hours that the bank was being robbed well there is no other conclusion to reach at that point than this had to have been an inside job and the person knew what they were doing because there is, it, there is no other reason for someone to turn off those security measures specifically for the time that there would have been a problem in the system. And that is why he reaches the conclusion that this has got to be somebody that is intentionally doing this. 
And he has a pretty good uh, rationale behind that. He's saying they intentionally did not do security updates. These systems, because they're computers, just like everything else, you know how occasionally uh, your computer software or the, your computer itself, like you get something from Microsoft and it says, hey, you need to update your system. Well, you know, some of us will ignore those things for a day or two, but we get around to updating them because we realize it's something that is important. He's saying that these missed several very important security updates and the difference in this and it just being your personal computer is their poll workers that this is their job. In other words, for it would be one thing, essentially, if your personal computer, you just you didn't have any problems with it. And so you put off that update for a week or two. He's saying they missed multiple updates over a long period of time. And this is work. This is what they're employed to do. And they still skipped out on the security updates in a time where, I mean, especially after the last election, with all this speculation that the, the vote was hacked and the investigations that we went through and everything going on there, you're going to tell me that the people running the election system were just like, yeah, let's just kind of not worry about those security updates. I mean, I'm sure it's not that big a deal or nobody's ever going to call us to task on it. No, he's saying that kind of had to be malicious. That had to be someone intentionally ignoring the security updates. He also says that all the security logs from election night and election day are missing. So we've got security logs from before then, when it didn't matter because there were no votes being cast, and we've got security logs for two days after the election, but for some reason that 48-hour period of election night and the day directly after the election, that's all gone and we can't explain it. Okay, well that is pretty darn suspicious, you've got to admit. Uh, the fact that just those two days are missing, he's like, why were these logs deleted? Why on earth would, of all things, the security logs for the election just be missing? And he comes to the conclusion that it had to have been somebody that was intentionally getting rid of these things. And then he also says that this led to errors, all of this behavior, led to errors which would lead the system to spitting out a ballot. So in other words... Now, I don't know exactly how it works, but like in the state of Alabama, you fill out your paper ballot, you stick it in the machine, and it spits it back out to you if there is some kind of error. He's saying what happened because of their their failures on keeping the software updated and everything, that it could have also resulted in somebody putting in their ballot, it spits the ballot back out, the person who doesn't, he just thinks that his ballot is, you know, not being taken because that's what it, it's supposed to do if the ballot isn't accepted. He'll put it back in, but he's saying that the machine would have counted it more than once. And so if you can figure out a way to make the system do this, all that you would have to do is if you wanted your candidate to win, whether they were Republican or Democrat, you just figure out which counties are going to be more likely to swing the vote in favor of the person that you want and just have all the all the machines in that particular county or in that particular jurisdiction have all of them do the spit out the ballot and count it twice thing so you know that when he he says like because there's no security logs he says i don't know how often it happened but again it seems like this was something that could certainly be done intentionally and could be done strategically in order to get all of the ballots incorrect 
And considering the large turnout, that might help explain at least part of the turnout. Now, it wouldn't explain all of it because there was large turnout all over the country, not just in Michigan, but it is something to make note of. And the results, according to him, and again, this is quoting directly from there, it observed an error rate of 68.05% with ballot counts that were, and I quote again, significant and fatal error in security and election integrity. Well, yeah, a 68% error rating, that would be a pretty fatal failure on security. Furthermore, and this is important as well, just for context to help you understand exactly how bad an error rate of 68.05 is, the Federal Election Commission, the FEC, their legally required allowable rate of error is 0.0008%. So in other words, one in 250,000 ballots, one of them might be wrong. Okay, FEC, that makes sense. Like, obviously the system's not perfect, and if we get one in every 250,000 ballots wrong, you know, that's unfortunate, but it's not going to change the results of the election if that's the only errors that you're having. A 68.05% rating means that 68 out of 100 ballots could be counted incorrectly. That's not an insignificant number, and I think that, you know, any average person that can count would be able to tell you that. So that's a pretty fatal flaw in the system. And then we had a second story out of Georgia. So Georgia apparently discovered that there were people that were voting with the drop boxes, and some of these were put out by, like, Facebook helped sponsor them and that kind of thing. I don't think that all of them were. But they put out drop boxes, and they were saying that there were people that were putting ballots in drop boxes, and then those same people would go to vote in person. Now, the Georgia system is supposed to keep the same person from voting twice, but especially with drop boxes that don't require a photo ID, they found about 1,700 suspected cases of people double voting through absentee ballots, and it's going to take them some time to be able to rectify that. And here's the interesting thing, because drop boxes were obviously, because there's more people, significantly more common in cities than they were in rural areas. That's where they put the majority of their drop boxes. There were far more of them per square mile because there's more voters per square mile, and so they were much more readily available. So the place where this happened the most, according to them, is in Fulton County. Fulton County is one of the primary counties that helped swing the state in favor of Joe Biden. Because this happened in primarily urban counties, that's where the majority of double voting took place. And by the way, 1,700, that's just the initial report. That's just the ones that they have found so far. And remember those counties that, even for blue counties, seem to go suspiciously strong for Biden? Maybe this explains part of it, may not explain all of it. Right now, it's too early to tell, and we don't know. But ultimately, this does raise a pretty big eyebrow in saying, I don't know, did Joe Biden actually win Georgia? Now, let's just say, before we get too deep into this one, that it actually swung the vote in favor of Trump in both of those states. I don't know if it would or not, but even if Trump won Michigan and Georgia, it still would not give him enough electoral college votes. So this isn't even about that, even though I think that you know this election could very well have been stolen. Stuff like this is why people think that that's a possibility. And by the way, according to this, the suspected cases of double voting, 
this primarily did happen in those blue counties. But remember that Joe Biden only won Georgia by 12,000 votes. That's an incredibly narrow margin of victory. And you're telling me now that now it turns out that there were at least 1,700 suspected cases of double voting. Okay, well, that would rob him of 1,700 if it turns out that that was the case. What happens if we dig into this a little bit further? It is very possible that something like this, if it happened on a larger scale than we currently believe that it did, could have made the difference in who won the state. And by the way, I do think it's funny, considering all this, that Stacey Abram, who is the legitimate governor of Georgia and was claiming this, continues to claim that she was the legitimate governor of Georgia and that Brian Kemp actually lost. She lost by 55,000 votes, which I find just hilarious that the left is like, oh, no, Trump shouldn't even be talking about how he really won Georgia and that that clearly went in favor of Joe Biden. Oh, well, then who's supposed to be the governor there? Because that was 4.5 times larger. Brian Kemp's victory was 4.5 times larger than Joe Biden's, but apparently that one is not legitimate. But Joe Biden winning Georgia, totally legitimate, even with all these allegations of voter fraud, and we shouldn't even question it. Don't give me that junk, people on the left. So what that really boils down to is a question of what do we do now then? And I think that's a fair question because I, like a lot of you, feel kind of pinned against a wall that I don't really know what should happen next because I see all these allegations of voter fraud and there's been dozens of these that we've gone over on this show and that other people in conservative media, some on News Radio 1440 like Mark Levin, like uh, Sean Hannity have talked about for the past several days. There's so much and it gets so overwhelming that you don't know what to do next or if there even is anything to do next. So, look, I think first of all, since yesterday was the Electoral College, we have to accept the fact that the clock ran out. I mean, would it have been great if Trump's legal team could have got together a case that challenged these multiple states and it turns out that Trump actually did win the election before the electors voted? Yeah, that would have been the best case scenario, but that didn't happen. Now the Electoral College has happened, and at least for what we can tell, even if Donald Trump did actually win those elections, according to the Constitution, what happened in the individual states doesn't actually matter. Now, according to the state Constitution, that may change if we find out that that election was fraudulent. But I'm just saying, from the Electoral College standpoint, Joe Biden is actually, according to law, the president-elect, and then it's up to Congress to confirm that when it comes forward, and then he'll be sworn in. So the clock's kind of run out on that. So the only thing really left to do is kind of what Mo Brooks was suggesting when he was on the other day in an interview, which is, if we find out that there was enough election fraud that this thing has to be considered null and void, that Congress would basically go in and say, yeah, we know that the election wasn't legitimate, and so what we're going to do is we're going to step in and correct the error. The reason that I'm not sure that that's quite the, quite the best thing to do yet is because we have a lot of allegations, but we can't dig into it as deeply, and we don't have proof that it would have changed the election. So like the Michigan case that I just gave you, that's a pretty strong case that there was a whole lot of shenanigans going on in the Michigan election. But is it enough to overturn it? It could be a case of the Democrats cheating but not needing to cheat. In other words, they actually won the election. They totally cheated, but they would have won it anyway. And so if we overturn it just because they cheated, that actually disenfranchises 
voters who obviously I believe were incorrect because they voted for Joe Biden. And I think that anybody that did, you know, they need to reevaluate their own mental health. But <laughs> nonetheless, uh, even though I disagree with them, you could have a number of people that did vote for Joe Biden enough to get him elected president and the voter fraud did happen, but it wasn't necessary for the voter fraud to happen for Joe Biden to be elected. So it's a difficult position to be in. It really is. And, and I, I hate this because that may be what happened, but here's the thing. My spidey senses are tingling. I look at these cases of fraud and there are some that I'm very confident that they were stolen. I think that Georgia absolutely was stolen. I think that there's, there's very little doubt in my mind on that. I think that Pennsylvania was stolen. I think Michigan may have been, but there's a wider margin in there. So even though I see all the fraud that's taking place, I can't prove that it would have been enough to hand Trump Michigan. I think it's actually more likely that he lost Michigan and Wisconsin uh, Arizona, I think that there was less fraud there, but that's also a pretty thin margin there. So, you know, maybe. And there's a couple of reasons to believe that something fishy could have happened in Arizona. But, you know, George, Biden probably did win Arizona based on all of the data that I'm seeing. And so it becomes a question of, OK, there was voter fraud and that makes things suspicious, but I don't have time to investigate it between now and then enough to the degree to be able to say definitively that it would have changed the outcome of the election. And so then you kind of have to develop a, uh, you kind of have to develop a plan going forward. And so I don't think that this means that we stop fighting. I don't think that this means that, you know, we give up or just accept whatever the Democrats try to ram down our throat. I, I've never been that guy. And I think that people that have watched me for some time know this, but if we did legitimately lose the presidency and Joe Biden, it looks like is going to be installed as the 50 or the 46th president of the United States, as horrible as that is to say, ultimately what we've got to do is we have to remember that if we do want to actually go forward with the Mo Brooks plan and, and try to get Congress to throw this election out We've got to have solid proof to justify that. And I, I support Mo Brooks' efforts. I really do. But we have to have conclusive proof in the battleground states that Trump needed to win to get him to 270 that there was enough funny business going on that it needs to go to Congress. And if that happens, I'm in favor of it. But let's say it doesn't. Let's say that it turns out that Joe Biden is president. He is president for the next four years. And by that, I mean, is president for the next year. And then Kamala Harris takes over. And ultimately, we have to do the same thing that we did in the Obama years, which is stand for liberty. One of the things that I hated to see about President Trump's election is that I saw the way that some Americans that were really involved in things like the Tea Party reacted to kind of like, OK, we can breathe easy now. And I know that that temptation is there and I know that it's strong, but ultimately we have to remain vigilant no matter who's in the White House to stand for liberty. That's a never-ending struggle. And I wanted Trump to win too, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that, I, that that's an unimportant thing or that that's not a big victory. All I'm saying is that when it comes right down to it, we cannot just neglect our duty as Americans to stand for liberty merely because a guy that we like happens to be in the White House. That's really all I'm saying here, guys. And so if Joe Biden is president, we need to do exactly what we did throughout the Obama years, which is 
organize, stand together like we did in the Tea Party, and stand for liberty. I know it's easy to get disheartened and feel like, well, we did all that we could, and we, we got out the vote, and we voted for the guy that we wanted, and ultimately it didn't make a difference because they straight up stole the election from us, and even if we, even when, we, when we did vote and did it the right way, it still didn't make a difference. And so, what's the point? I feel that too. That temptation is in me to just give up and say it doesn't matter because even if we do vote the right person in, they just ignore it and say, ha, silly little peons over here in flyover country, they want this, screw them, we're just doing what we want anyway and leaving the establishment in place. I get that that's an incredibly disheartening thing to go through, but ultimately we can't let it get us down. It's not a reason to give up the fight. Because... Their goal is to make you feel alone and helpless and like what you do doesn't matter, so why bother? That's what they're trying to do now. And if we allow them to make us feel that way, if we allow them to convince us to give up, then they've won the fight. Then we've given up. And so, I think it's important to remember here, the reason that they hated Trump is because he made people like you feel empowered. He made conservatives and people that love this country, he made them feel empowered when the media for years had made them think that they were alone and they were in the minority and there weren't people that thought like them. That was the difference. And because Trump gave a voice to those people, not a perfect voice, but a voice to those people, the media couldn't stand him for it. They hated the idea that these country-fried rubes out in red states in the middle of the country were fighting back against their agenda. That's why they hated the guy. And ultimately, that's what it boils down to is the fight made a difference. The way that we stood up to people in the Obama era made a difference. And it's hit a hiccup here if President Bi if Biden is indeed installed as president. Yeah, it hit a hiccup. But that's not a reason to give up the fight. It did have results. It did bear fruit. And so, if anything, that should be an encouragement to move forward in the future. The thing they hated the most about Trump is that he listened to you. Is that when you said something, he took you seriously and considered it. They don't want that. They want a bunch of arrogant coastal elites that think that they know better than everybody else and that they can run your life better than you can. That's what they want. That's who they want empowered. That's why Joe Biden is there now. Trump didn't do that. He actually took you seriously and wanted to hear what you had to say and let, uh, sometimes spoke you know, in favor of that and, and basically gave a voice to people like that. That's why they hated him. They didn't want to hear that opinion. And so ultimately, that's what it boils down to. And so, in a tangible way, right now, I think that the best thing that you could do is if you are in a blue state, I know most of my viewers are in Alabama and this doesn't really make sense for people in Alabama, but if you are in a blue state, open your business and don't wear a mask in a place that it doesn't make sense. I was at the Montgomery Cancer Center that's a building full of, full of people that are immunocompromised. Yeah, I wore a mask in there. That's one place where it totally makes sense to wear a mask. Pretty much everywhere else, there's no reason to wear a mask. 
And so don't. If people tell you you have to close your business, keep it open. If they tell you you have to close your school or have to close your church, don't keep it open. You want to resist? That's the way to do it. Because they're wanting you to get back in line. They're wanting you to calm down and shut up and just keep your mouth shut. That's what they want. If you want that message to get out there, that's the way to do it right now. Tell them that they can't control your life, that they don't get to tell you who you get to have over Thanksgiving. They don't, tell, they don't get to tell you that you have to close down your business, that you have to close down your livelihood and just sit and wait for the government to take care of you. That's the message that they need to hear, that you are not willing to do that. It made me think of a quote by a general, and, and to understand the context of where this is going, this is a General uh, Anthony Wayne. He was the general in charge of the troops at Stony Point in the Revolutionary War. The man was shot in the head and still had a bullet stuck in his head before he would go into surgery. He didn't leave the battle. He continued to fight the battle. Eventually, the battle was won. They took the fort, and he refused to go into surgery until he reported to General Washington through a letter as to the results of the battle. This is a man that literally had a bullet stuck in his head and refused to go down until he had conveyed this message to Washington. That's how important he felt it was, and I think it's pretty important, too. I love this quote from this letter. Stood up, and he said that Wait, is that's a not false it. statement, and that was a great thing. I'm Sorry about that. There we go. Uh, Dear General, the fort and the garrison with Colonel Johnson are ours. Our officers and men behaved like men who are determined to be free. What does that mean? Determined to be free. Guys, I hate to say it, but there's an awful lot of Americans right now that are not determined to be free. They have not readied in their hearts what they need to do to be free. They just haven't done it yet. When the government tells them that they have to shut down their church and they have to shut down their business, guys, really, is there anything else? Is there anything more the government could tell you to do that you just go, okay, I mean, other than like, I don't know, killing your children, I don't know that there's anything else that you could do that would make you stand up and fight if you're not going to do it when people say you can't go to church and you can't open your business. That's not a person that is determined to be free. You see, staying in a fight when you have a literal bullet in your head, that's somebody determined to be free. That is somebody that their life is not as important to them as liberty is. But for the past several months, Americans have been worshiping at the altar of safetyism and throwing liberty on that altar as a sacrifice. It's like a pagan religion. There is no guarantee of safety. And you do not give up your liberties for security. That's not the way that this works. Live as men who are determined to be free. That's our recourse. That when someone from the government tells you what you have to do, you say no. And it's going to cause problems for you. And it's not going to be easy. I understand that. But neither was fighting a battle with a bullet in your head. If we want to keep the America that we were promised, if we want to stand up to here on the Bill of Rights Day, 
if we want to stand up to the principles espoused by the Declaration, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, we have to act as people that are determined to have liberty, even if it costs us our safety or our own life. And I'm sad to say that most Americans just are not there right now. And I don't want people to be sacrificing themselves or anything like that. But we have to start from the premise that some things are more important than our own lives, and especially more than our own comfort. And if we can't start from that, then we don't deserve liberty. If we're not willing to lay everything that we have on the line to do that, then we do not deserve the freedom that we have. And if our elected officials see that we're not willing to do that, that we're not willing to give up the things that we have, we're not willing to sacrifice our security or our comfort for our freedom, they will use that against us and already have. They've been doing it for months now. Actually, they've been doing it for years now, but especially in the past few months. Look, I don't want a civil war. I don't want us to go grab our guns and try to overthrow the results of the election. That's not what I'm calling for, guys. But ultimately, what I am calling for is a spiritual war. That when it seems like the entire nation is worshiping at the altar of an alternative God, that we stand up like Elijah and say, no, we will not serve your gods. We have one God, he gives us our rights, and there's not a dang thing you can do about it. We will live like free men. That's how this story should end. Now, one other thing that I wanted to get to, uh, just I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because we're, we're kind of running out of time, but Bill Barr, the Attorney General, he has officially resigned. And a lot of people, this is something that's kind of made the buzz around the media, especially conservative media. Here's what I don't understand, and, and I've been saying this for a while now. Has, can anyone actually explain to me what Bill Barr did in office? Like, an accomplishment, a, a direct... I'll even take a directive. Just him moving the Department of Justice in the right direction. Because I, I, I don't see it. I don't understand a single thing that the guy has done that is worthy of note. Now, he was dang good when being questioned. He is excellent at chewing people out. He's good at that. And if you want somebody on the stand to explain some kind of illegal activity, yeah, Bill Barr's the guy. He's the best. The problem with that is he doesn't actually seem to do anything. He's like a platypus. I mean, he's there, but he doesn't really do anything. And that's been the problem that I've had with Bill Barr since the beginning. He doesn't arrest people. He doesn't launch investigations. He doesn't hold people accountable. It seems like he's really good at talking about things. He's just not real good at doing them. And I think that that's been his biggest problem is he does not seem to have the stones to take on the establishment himself. He'll talk bad about it. He'll point out the flaws, but ultimately his Justice Department will not do anything or take any action against it. Even when the president that is sitting there is the target of a, a completely false uh, investigation, or when his political opponent is the target of an investigation, and Bill Barr just keeps his mouth shut about it and won't reveal it until after the election. So this is kind of the situation that Bill Barr found himself in, is that apparently he knew about the investigation into Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, for months now, and just didn't say anything. And President Trump was very disappointed in this. In fact, you can see this in the next clip that I'm about to play where President Trump talks about this. 
Hunter Biden this week has confirmed two investigations on him, one on Jim Biden. You see, the word is you're disappointed that William Barr knew about this in the spring. Well, everybody is. Who isn't disappointed? Right. Joe Biden lied on the debate stage. He said there's nothing happening, nothing happening, and Bill Barr should have stepped up. I'll tell you what. Say what you want about Robert Mueller. When BuzzFeed put out a phony article, I think it was BuzzFeed, but BuzzFeed put out a phony article, Bob Mueller stepped out and he said that article was a phony and then there was ultimately proven no collusion. No, after two years, no collusion. But Bob Mueller stood up and he, he interjected that this article was false. Bill Barr should have done the same thing. Now we all know, we all know that President Trump's Achilles Hill is communication. He's not that great at speaking directly to people because he tends to talk in word salads. He tends to be not very concise. And especially when it comes to legal matters, he gets the terminology wrong from time to time. And he, he, you know, the direction of where he's trying to go is probably good, but he just winds up muffling it. That is one of Trump's best, I mean, absolute best interviews that he's ever done. That was concise, it was clear, and it was 100% correct. And I say this as a talk show host, and normally I say, you know, Mr. President, especially when it comes to personal stuff, stay out of it, let your surrogates handle that, let people on talk radio handle that, let the Sean Hannity's of the world handle that, let your press secretary handle that, but don't get into that yourself. Uh, that was as good as Trump's ever been. I mean, he just wailed into Attorney General Barr and did so 100% accurately got all, you know, it was very concise, it was very clear, but it sent a very clear message. He's saying, look, even Robert Mueller, who I've been incredibly critical of, and he has, even he did the right thing when BuzzFeed put out that article alleging something on me, and he says, nope, we looked into that, that's just not true. There's no truth to that, you know, that allegation against the president. And that's what should have happened. The special counsel, Robert Mueller, should have come forward and say, yeah, the media is circulating this, but we've already looked into it and found out, even though the investigation is not done yet, that there's really no truth to that one. Bill Barr should have come forward and set the record straight. I mean, that, that was as good as any talk radio uh, segment that you're ever going to hear from me or Hannity or uh, the people that are, you know, that are a lot better at this than I am, your, your Bill O'Reilly's of the world and your Mark Levin's and that kind of thing. Uh, Trump was spot on on that. And furthermore... When President Trump is saying that you're worse than Robert Mueller, that's not a compliment to you. So Attorney General Barr, uh, definitely in the doghouse with President Trump. And he continues on in the same interview and makes another really good point that I wanted to share with you. Jonathan Turley said that uh, he had no choice, that he, he would have been like, it would have been like uh, James Comey again. All he had to do is say an investigation's going on. And by the way, I don't want to see anything bad happen to Hunter Biden. Whatever it is, it is the facts. But I don't want to see anything bad happen to Hunter Biden. And I purposely stay out of it. But when you affect an election, Bill Barr, frankly, did the wrong thing. When they are saying things, making statements, and the press is purposely not reporting it, Bill Barr, I believe, not believe, I know, had an obligation to set the record straight, just like Robert Mueller set the record straight. You know, he set it straight. A very bad thing was said, and it was a false article, a false statement, which, you know, usually they are with the, with the media. But this was a false statement. And Robert Mueller stood up, and he said, that is a false statement. And that was a great thing. All right, so in this clip, 
what he's talking about is making that comparison between what would have happened if Barr had come forward with this information and it being kind of like James Comey, which was perceived as being biased because he released the information about Hillary Clinton and having new emails that were under investigation very late in the game. So here's the issue with that. The premise of the question, and I don't bring Brian Kilmey. All he's doing is he's saying, these are allegations that are being lobbed against you. Would you like to respond to them? So it's not Brian Kilmey's fault there at Fox News. He's actually doing his job there. Uh, but he presents Trump with this saying, okay, but wouldn't Barr just kind of have his back up against the wall? And if he had done something there, that he would have been just like James Comey uh, getting involved in the election? Okay, would that have affected the election? If Bill Barr had come out, just a couple months before the election happened, said, by the way, we've been made aware that Hunter Biden has emails that are under investigation and, and Barr knew about that and, and apparently sat on his hands about it until after the election took place and knew about it the whole time. It's right for Trump to be upset about this because would that have affected the election? Yeah, probably would have. Would that have been a bad thing? I don't see why. And I'm not just saying that because I think it probably would have helped Trump. If we turned out that Donald Trump Jr. or Ivanka Trump was under investigation two or three months, that would have affected the election too. And you know what I would have said? That the American people are supposed to know about that. See, it's not bad to affect an election. It is bad when law enforcement affects an election in a specific way because they want to. That's the issue. So if you're strategically releasing information that affects the election in a certain way, trying to help out one candidate while hurting the other. So let's say that you've got information on one of them, but not information on the other. And, or sorry, you have information on both of them, but you release one set of information that makes one candidate look bad and not the other. Okay, that would be really bad, but it's not because you're affecting the election. It's because of the way that you're affecting it and doing so in a biased way. If you're a law enforcement officer, you have an obligation to, if that is going to be something that is going to affect one of the candidates, to let the people know about that. See, what James Comey did wasn't wrong because it helped Trump or hurt Hillary. It was at least perceived to be wrong because there was one side that said he did that specifically to try to hurt Hillary, which is absurd on a number of levels. And the truth is, his deputy director, Andrew McCabe, is the one that screwed that up. Because if you'll remember the timeline correctly on that, Andrew McCabe was in charge of the Anthony Weiner scandal where he was doing that investigation and then stumbled upon new emails from presumably the Hillary Clinton server and then sat on that information for several weeks. And then James Comey found out like a week and a half before the election and was like, oh, well, now we've got to let people know about that. Why? Because even though James Comey was a nightmare, that was the right thing to do. When you have that information, you're supposed to come forward with it right then and there. James Comey made the right call on that. And if the FBI had not been corrupt and been trying to hide that in the first place, we would have had that information several weeks ahead of time to where it would have had less impact on the election. But that's not your call. Holding back information is also affecting the election. President Trump is right on that. Bill Barr deciding that I'm going to withhold this information from the American public that could affect the election, that is Bill Barr making a decision that affects the election. So you're affecting the election either way. 
The difference is one side, you're actually doing so with transparency and acting the way that a law enforcement officer should, which is in an unbiased manner. And you just tell the truth and let the chips fall where they may. The other one is him making a decision that the American people don't need to know about that and I don't want this to affect their decision of who to be elected. That's the wrong thing to do. And so ultimately that is the difference in these two scenarios that Brian Kilmey is bringing up uh, when you're comparing Barr to Comey. I mean, just kind of like them leaking the still dossier but not the, uh, the Clinton email probe until very late in the game. That affected the election, but it was the way that they affected it and, and launching the fake investigation and everything like that. It was the way that it was done, and it was specifically orchestrated to hurt one candidate and not the other. That was the issue there. And so ultimately, that's what it boils down to. It's okay to affect an election. In fact, you're supposed to just not care whether it affects the election or not. You're supposed to just, as a law enforcement officer, just bring forward the facts and let the chips fall where they may. That's the difference in the behavior that is being talked about here. Imagine it like the Houston Astros. For those of you that follow baseball, the Houston Astros were recently caught cheating by stealing signs from other teams, and then they could tell which pitches were coming, and because of that, they were able to communicate with their batters, and if you know what pitch is coming, it's a lot easier to hit the ball. So <laughs> that was really what was going on there. If another team discovered that the Houston Astros were stealing signs, would it help them to report that? Yes, but that's what they're supposed to do. They can't just say, well, that would affect the outcome of the game. Yet, yeah, probably would, and yes, it would probably help your team, but you're supposed to report it anyway because that's the way that you're supposed to do it. When a violation of the rules comes up, you have to let people know about that. You can't just sit on it until the game is over and then tell people about it. That, that would affect the outcome of the game, too, if they're allowed to continue to steal signs. This is the problem. It's not the fact that it affects the election itself. It's the way that it affects it and the way that Law enforcement seems biased against one side as opposed to the other. That's the problem with what's going on here. You trust the American people to make their own decisions. My only passing question with this would be, I wonder if Donald Trump is missing Jeff Sessions right now. I really don't know. Uh, that would be interesting to ask him. I, I wish that Brian Kilmeade had asked him about that as well. But ultimately, I think what it boils down to is, I think that Barr makes a pretty good representative, like a surrogate for President Trump, because he's really good at talking about stuff. He's just not very good at doing stuff. And because of that, I think that his legacy as AG is going to be basically a blip on the radar and not much else. So one other thing I wanted to mention, because you guys know I'm an Auburn fan, Coach Malzahn was fired, and I don't want to do a deep dive into exactly the, the logistics of whether or not he should have been fired or not. I can really see an argument on both sides of that. He had kind of grown comfortable with mediocrity, and I think his comments after the Texas A&M game kind of put that on display. So I, I get people being frustrated with that. I would say that maybe it makes sense to hang on to mediocrity for one more year until we have a more favorable coaches market up in the next year, because frankly, I'm looking at the coaches that are available after this season, and it is slim pickings. But nonetheless, you know, the strategy aside, the main thing that I wanted to bring up about Coach Malzahn is he ran that football program with integrity and honor, completely scandal-free, 
and his athletes loved him, and he built the character of those guys, which I think is the primary purpose of a football program. I mean, winning games is great. Don't get me wrong. Love to win. And I'd love to win more. And I, I wish that Malzahn had won more while he was at Auburn. So I understand the gripes there. And I understand that winning is an important part of the game. But ultimately, I've always thought that the primary purpose of any sport team, especially one that's not professional and is done at the university level, is to build the character and to teach the lessons. Because remember, it's a school, so teaching is always the primary objective to the young men involved in that program. And a lot of people can question how committed Gus was to winning football games. I don't think anybody can question how committed Gus Malzahn was to improving the morality, the character, and teaching life lessons to his students, his athletes. And so I know that there's a wide variety, including in, in my own friend group, about Gus Malzahn of opinions and whether or not he should have stayed or not. But ultimately, even though... I probably would have hung on for one more year, if nothing else, just to get a better coach's market afterward. I don't think anybody can complain about the job he did and the integrity that he brought to that program. So, Coach Malzahn, appreciate the memories. You'll be greatly missed by me. War Eagle. Let's go to the Daily Dose of Stupid. Now, you messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. <laughs> Help if I turn my mic on. Maybe I should be in the Daily Dose of Stupid. But no, for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, we have the Cleveland Indians who are going to be changing their name. So if you're familiar with the Cleveland Indians, if you're a Major League Baseball fan like I am, they, according to them, their current plan is to use the name of the 2020 season, or sorry, the, the 2021 season, and then transition away from the Cleveland Indians name in 2022 and sort of lay the groundwork for that over the course of the next year. <sighs> Here we go again. It's just like the Redskins, but uh, I love this characterization that was given by the New York Times. You can check this out here. So the New York Times says, after years of protests from fans and Native American groups, the Cleveland Indians have decided to change their team name moving away from the moniker that has long been criticized as racist, three people familiar with the decision said Sunday. The move follows a decision by the Washington football team in the NFL. Uh, I still can't get over that one. In July, to stop using a name long considered a racial slur and part of a larger national conversation about race and magnified this year amid protest of systematic racism and police violence. So there's... So much wrong with that short little statement. It, it would take me too long to go through every part of it. But the characterization to me is just hysterical. Like years of protest from They're acting like and they're trying to drum up an idea in the, the mind of their viewers and, and readers there. That there has been this long-standing sentiment that the Cleveland Indians... Uh, that they're racist against Native Americans, and only now, after years and years of people crying out for this change to take place, have they finally capitulated and g done the right thing and changed their name. This is a load of garbage. There's no truth to that whatsoever. Have there always been a handful of people that are malcontents, that are upset about the name? Yeah. 
But the idea that this thing is widespread and there's uh, protest of fans. Okay, um, no. In fact, I, if you believe that the name was racist and the team was racist, why would you be a fan of it? A protest of some Native Americans? Okay, yeah. Occasionally on opening day, you're going to have like maybe seven, eight Native Americans there that are protesting the name. That does happen in Cleveland. But is it a widespread thing that the fans have long had a problem with? No. No. Simply not true. But the New York Times is so dedicated to this narrative that this is something that their ideas are the mainstream and lots of people have an issue with this and it's a, a horrible, terrible thing that they're doing and so finally this change is taking place. It's simply not true. The New York Times is trying to drum up a narrative where none exists. The characterization here is just so overblown, it's hysterical. But you will occasionally find some Native Americans that do find the name offensive. That is correct. But I could also find you some flat earthers. The fact that you can point to a handful of, of random nut jobs that have no job and nothing better to do than to protest the name of a baseball team is not evidence that this is something that is the mainstream. People at the New York Times believe it, sure, but the average person on the street or you know, baseball fan, any baseball fan knows this is not a hot topic. This is not something that baseball fans care deeply about and never really have. The only passion that you'll really find on either side of the debate comes from the actual fans of the Cleveland Indians that really like the name and like the imagery. But ultimately... Uh, what this boils down to is the Cleveland Indians care more about what a bunch of angry, woke, white liberals care about than Native Americans or their own fan base. Because let's not pretend that there's a large uh, cross-section between rabid baseball fans and woke white liberals. Just simply not there. Now, are there going to be some Democrat voters that are baseball fans of, like, you know, the New York Yankees or Oakland, or, or some of the other teams that are in deep blue districts, yeah, that's going to take place, and, uh, you know, that's okay, because that's part of America, is that our political differences and divides, we can still unite on hobbies and things like that, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I don't, you know, if I'm, I'm sitting next to a Braves fan in a stadium, I don't really care the way that he votes. You know, we're pulling for the same team right there. But when it comes to all of this, uh there's probably not a lot of crossover. Like, if there's a Venn diagram of baseball fans and uber-woke white liberals that think that this name is problematic, I'm guessing that sliver where there's overlap there is really, really tiny, if non-existent. And generally speaking, your blue-collar working-class guys are the ones that like baseball. And so there's just not a lot of crossover there, but they, they want to act as though this is something that baseball fans have been calling for for years, this is so low on the list of priorities of things baseball fans want to talk about. It's basically off the list. That's how low a priority this really is. But ultimately it does come down to it's a bunch of woke white people that experience white guilt about how uh, people of different races have been treated by white people in the past that they try to do the best that they can to virtue signal, no, I'm one of the good white people, and yes, white people are evil, but I happen to be one of the good ones. Ultimately, that's what this is about. It's the same thing that we saw earlier this year with Uncle Ben and Aunt Jemima. Aunt Jemima, which was bought by black people at a ratio of four to one, 
In other words, four times as many black people were buying Aunt Jemima as white people because they liked the syrup, which is the reason that you're supposed to buy syrup. I know that this is something that is difficult to understand for a leftist that thinks that every single decision you make every day has to be some kind of expression of political correctness. But no, people bought the syrup not because of the imagery, but because they like syrup and liked their brand of syrup. That a bunch of white people say, no, that's racist. You shouldn't like that. And so we're going to take the, mo the brand that black people prefer more than any other off the shelves to show you how woke we are. <laughs> bunch of angry white liberals taking syrup away from black families. Yeah, that's progress. Good job, guys. Well done. Uh, the same thing with the Washington Redskins. I did a whole 20-minute segment on the history of that and how Native Americans were actually involved in the naming of that team and the imagery and all of that stuff. Uh, and then a bunch of white people came on and it's like, nope, you shouldn't like that, Native Americans. We have to pull that away. Well, the thing is, this is exactly the same thing. In fact, if you look at this poll that was taken by a Native American uh, news organization known as, if we can pull it up, there we go, Indian Country Today, they took a poll, and this one was, I think this one's a couple of years old, but it's the only one I could find on the Cleveland Indians specifically. Do you find, uh, agree with the protesters who say Cleveland Indians' name and Chief Wahoo logo are offensive? Remember, this is a poll of a Native American news publication. So presumably mostly Native Americans that are going to be taking this poll. 67% over two-thirds said no. Well, almost, actually slightly less than two-thirds, but basically two-thirds said no. Only 32% said yes. And I also want you to remember that this is a news publication specifically geared towards Native Americans, which means people that read a newspaper specifically geared to a racial group, they're probably going to be even further left than the average person. So I tend to think that this poll probably is amongst, if you were to poll every Native American, probably most of them don't care, even higher than the 67% that said, no, we don't find it offensive. People seem to not understand this is a tribute. It is not a cut down or a racial slur. I mean, when you name a baseball team something, you are naming it something you like. I'm right here in the city of Montgomery. What is our baseball team called? Our double-A baseball team here, who's an affiliate of the Tampa Bay Rays, they're the Biscuits. Do you think we named them that because we hate Biscuits? No. We like Biscuits. That's why we named them the Biscuits. Do you think that up in, uh, in Huntsville, where they just had the new, the, the new stadium open, do you think that they call themselves the Trash Pandas because everybody hates raccoons? No, they're called the Trash Pandas because everybody really liked Guardians of the Galaxy. That's really what it boils down to. They like the, the, the space rocket um, uh, rocket raccoon character in that, and they made a, a cartoon character that's really similar to him, and he's really popular, and it's marketable, and because people really like it, that's why they named their baseball team after it. That's what you do with a baseball team. You name it after something that you really like. And so naming it after the Indians or like my team, the Atlanta Braves, naming it after the Braves, that's a tribute. We're saying this is a cool thing that we like and we want to use that as imagery. And so because of that, we like this thing and we're going to make it our team name. But see, somebody that is not a sports fan would not understand that. 
You see, that's the disconnect here. The vast majority of the New York Times readers that are uber-left and uber-woke and the people that actually work in New York Times, they couldn't give two craps about baseball. Just don't care about it. And because of that, they can say this thing, and they know that most of their readers is not going to read that and know that this is a gross mischaracterization of the way that things actually are in baseball, but they don't care because they don't really care about baseball. You know, when it comes to the Braves, I... I was talking to my buddy Joe Hunk about this earlier. You know, he's a, a sports guy, a friend of mine. Uh, he was on sports radio. And he was saying, you know, I think the Braves probably keep the name but get rid of the Tomahawk, but I got to tell you, man, I'm, I'm worried about that. And if the Braves get rid of the name, and frankly, I'm almost to the point that if they get rid of the Tomahawk, I'm just going to become more of a Rays fan. Or Red Sox. I, I, I really pull for both of those teams. I'm not going to get into why. Uh, the Rays, primarily, just because of Montgomery. Uh, but I, I, it just it burns me up so much because I love the Braves. I've got Braves stuff all over my living room. Uh, been a Braves fan since I was a little kid. Um, oh, well, I can't actually say that because that's somebody's Christmas present. But anyway, I was going to give an illustration. The point is, I have a lot of Braves stuff. I like Braves stuff. I like the imagery. My favorite, my favorite logo is the tomahawk A, the the A with the tomahawk through it. Not because I think it's racist, because I think it looks cool. And also because my Braves hats commonly get mistaken for Alabama hats living in the state. So I like something that's a little more distinguishing. But uh, at the end of the day, I'm just I'm really worried that a bunch of angry white liberals are going to ruin everything as they typically do. So it's so condescending for them to believe that Native Americans all feel the same about this. That they're all a monolith and that they have the ability to tell them what they should and should not be offended by. Native Americans are people and individuals let them speak to themselves, and if they say it doesn't bother them, then believe them when they tell you it doesn't bother them. The last thing I will say is, if we're going to go woke anyway, can I at least make a suggestion on the name? Can we call them the Cleveland Elizabeth Warrens? I think that would be appropriate. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Our Chaplain's Report is going to be continuing in the book of 1 Samuel. And the only thing that you really need to know about this is that David and Jonathan, they're about to test Saul. So you may recall in the last chaplain's report that what's going on here is David saying, uh, Jonathan, your dad's tried to kill me a few times, and I'm pretty sure he's only inviting me to this new moon Sabbath feast because he's going to take it as an opportunity to kill me there. And Jonathan's kind of like, Look, I've talked to my dad, and I've already talked him down once, and I really don't think he's going to do that. I think you're worried for nothing. But just to be safe, why don't we orchestrate this little plan to really test and see whether he wants to kill you or do you some kind of harm or not. And so they're having this conversation, and these few verses that we're going to look at today are a part of that conversation as well. So we're going to start in 1 Samuel 20, verses 14 through 17. And if I am still alive, this is Jonathan speaking, by the way. And if I am still alive, 
Will you not show me the faithfulness of the Lord, so that I will not die? And you shall never cut off your loyalty to my house, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord demand it from the hands of David's enemies. And Jonathan made David a vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. There's a few things I want you to notice about this. Even though Jonathan is skeptical of David's claim that Saul wants to kill him, even though his default position when David tells him that is, I don't know, David, it seems to me like you're worried for nothing, and I've talked to him before, I don't think that he's actually going to do that. He kind of does the trust but verify thing. He thinks he's right, but he says, you know what, let's test it out. I think that that shows a lot of character from Jonathan because, yeah, Jonathan is skeptical, but he is not against changing his mind if the data bears it out. You see, the truth fears no questions. Jonathan is more concerned with finding out what the truth is behind his father's intentions than he is about being right. I'm sure he'd like to be right. We all like to be right. And Jonathan would rather his father not try to murder his best friend. I think that's a fair assessment. He would like for this thing not to be true. However, he is still willing to move forward with a test of his father's intentions because he wants to get to the truth. And he will abide by the truth regardless of where it leads him. He has an idea, he has an opinion, and he feels very strongly about it, but he still thinks that truth is more important than his opinion. That's what a Christian is supposed to do from the very beginning. That's what we all need to do, is we need to believe in objective truth and that we will follow it no matter where it may lead us. But Jonathan, also in this, believes that his or that God's will is more important than his will. You see, he knows that God favors David and that he has already promised that David will be king. He knows this. He knows that it means that that Saul's line is going to be cut off and it's going to be transferred to David. And remember, Jonathan is in Saul's line. He is the prince. And because of this, he could presumably be king. And if he were to be, you know, if, if Saul were to lose his crown and it gets shifted over to David, then Jonathan's no longer in a, a royal line of secession. Jonathan has no chance of getting the crown. That doesn't matter to him. He wants God's will not what he wants. That's the difference. And as Christians, that's what we're called to do too. That, yeah, there are things that we want, there are things that we want God to do for us, but ultimately when it comes down to it, part of being a disciple of Christ, part of being somebody that is a, a person that lives by God's standard means that occasionally what you're going to have to do is submit your will to his, to accept that God's will is better than your will, and because of that, you are willing to subjugate yourself to him. That's what Jonathan is doing here. He's saying, even though I don't want this to be true, if it is true, I will follow it, because it's God's will. And he also puts God's will above his father's will as well, and that is admirable as well. You have to keep in mind, with what Jonathan's asking here, you have to keep in mind the culture of the day. Because back then, when a family took over the throne, they killed every single member of the other family. 
because they did not want rivals. They did not want anybody with a legitimate claim to the crown to rise up and build a resistance and try to overthrow them again. And so when one family goes in and takes over and becomes the new royal family, they kill every single member so that there is not even a chance that that old line could come back. And all Jonathan does here is he asks David, when you take the throne, and I believe that you will because it's God's will, just deal kindly with me and my family. When God cuts that off, I just want you to remember that I'm not your enemy. And I don't want to do any harm by you. And, you know, he loves him. He, he's his best friend. He doesn't want to see anything terrible happen to David. And he says, so when that happens, just deal kindly with my family. It's okay. It's God's will. I understand it. But remember that I wasn't the one that did that to you. That I'm not your enemy. And so Jonathan trusts David to do the right thing. He has so much faith in his friend that he can make this request of him because he knows that David is going to do the right thing regardless of what happens. Whether David is a, a rebel on the run like he is now that doesn't really have any power, or he becomes king of the nation, which of course he eventually does, he knows that that power is not going to change David, that David is going to do the right thing, that he is going to follow God's will no matter what his station in life is. That's how much he believes in his friend. And it really is a beautiful thing and a testament to the faith that Jonathan has, not only in God, but in David as well. And I also want us to look at it from David's perspective, because David loves Jonathan enough to not see him as an enemy just because of who his family was. You see, like I said, in this day and age, if somebody that was a member of your family was your enemy, you saw all of them as your enemy. Saul is trying to kill David and wipe him out. And David's response to this is, well, that makes Saul my enemy, but not everybody else. Jonathan's not a bad guy because his father happens to be a bad guy. And that comes from a biblical teaching. That was a new teaching, something that was unique to the Hebrews, that the sins do not bear the, the sin of the father. Uh, sorry, the, the, the father does not bear the sins of the son, nor the, the son the sins of his father. That's in the Torah. That's the law of Moses. And so because of that, David is just following the law of God to its logical conclusion, which is, well, I'm not going to blame Jonathan for the bad things that his dad's done, even if his dad really does want to kill me, and we find out through this test that he's going to try to kill me again. That's not Jonathan's fault. And I can still love Jonathan, even though Saul is my enemy. You see, David, kind of like what we were talking about at the beginning of this episode with the Bill of Rights. David sees people as individuals, and he doesn't treat them differently because of choices that other people made. I think that's a good life lesson for us as Christians and just in general, is that just because there might be a person in somebody's family or their friend group or something that happens that, that, that they do wrong by us, that doesn't mean that person is responsible for their actions. They may not even know about those actions. Right here, Jonathan doesn't seem to know about what Saul's malicious intent is. And he doesn't want to believe that, but ultimately, Jonathan's not responsible for those things. Jonathan makes his own decisions. He's his own moral agent because he, just like everybody else, is an individual that makes his own choices. And God is going to judge us only for our own choices, 
not for the choices of other people. David did see people like individuals. Saul saw people like pawns in a game. That's how Saul views people. That's why he can use his oldest daughter as a pawn to try to lure David in so he can kill him. And then after that happens, he says, well, I'll give you my other daughter, even though I married off my daughter that I originally promised to you. I'll give you my younger daughter, but you have to go out and kill all of these people. And that was just a ploy to get David killed through the hands of the Philistines. And then he also later uses Jonathan basically as bait to lure David back into him. And so to Saul, these people aren't individuals. They're just kind of like pawns on a chessboard that he's moving around and trying to get rid of his enemies by using them as tools for his own benefit. David loved Jonathan, and he loved his wife Machal, who was, da- was Saul's daughter. He looked at people as individuals and didn't you know, think of them as merely what they could do for him or how they could work against him. He just saw them. And that was the difference in David and Saul. But David and Jonathan really... They were only able to love one another like this because they loved God. David takes the stance that he does on Jonathan and treating him like an individual because he believes the words that God gave him. He believes the Torah. He believes that God is morally right, and he follows those principles to lead him to the truth. Jonathan goes against his own father, his own family, and vows a vow to David because he believes that's what God would want him to do. He looks at God's will and says, well, God's will just supersedes my father's will. It's more important than my father's will and more important than my will. And so because of that, I'm going to love the person that is morally right and right in God's sight, and that's David. The reason that they were able to have this close relationship and they were able to treat one another like brothers is because they were under God in his sight. They were able to be unified because they loved him first. You see, if God is love and the source of all love, then ultimately any love that we can have for one another has to originate from him. And that's exactly what we're seeing played out here in this story. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.